Myron Weber. And he's Jeremy Thomas. And this is Mental Supermodels, the podcast that explores the theory and practice, the art and science of mental modeling for decision-making and problem-solving. Mental supermodels are practical techniques that influence your mindset when approaching those complex problems and driving decisions. Today, we're going to transition from our strategy pillar that we've been talking about over to the execution pillar. And on the execution side, we have three stages, manage, validate, and measure. And today's not about going through those stages. It's about getting to them. And in our last episode, we talked about prioritizing what we want to work on, what's important uh, and most valuable. We've confirmed high-level timeframes is what we talked about last time. Confirming our high-level timeframes and our resources and the capabilities that are needed. Uh, but we haven't really started our project planning at this point in the, in the six-stage journey. But that's what we're trying to transition to. Okay. We have a roadmap and we're basically ready to get going here. Now, one of the keys to being able to move with speed is the ability to make decisions quickly. So before we get going, and personally, we've talked about this and you like principles as well. I like using principles because they kind of anchor my thinking. Mm -hmm. And in this case, my principle is going to be a willingness to adapt. Nice. It sounds simple enough, really, but you know, I've seen colleagues get so frustrated saying that people keep changing their mind when they're working, uh, you know, and they'll say, how can, how can I ever finish anything if you're constantly changing your mind or changing directions or changing priorities? So I want to take my roadmap and move it forward, knowing that we're entering into another series of decision-making, you know, each stage we go through various steps we're always making decisions and I don't want it to seem like at the end of the planning stage or the prioritization that we're done making decisions. We're basically entering into another decision-making phase, uh, you know, because you don't want to just make decisions and then execute. There's always going to be new decisions to be made, you know, based on new information that you're getting, you're constantly adjusting. And that's why, you know, I like to go ahead and just prepare my mindset with a willingness to adapt it'll set that expectation for myself. And now starting with the end in mind, as I always love to do, what are we looking to achieve during this transition from our strategic roadmap to the beginning of execution, which is what we're looking to do? Because it's not about specific deliverables yet. It's about setting a process, the rules of engagement before we step into the chaos. And if I visualize my roadmap as a recipe that I keep referring back to uh, as I start cooking and putting project plans together and all the activities needed to start executing. Uh, basically, it's actually more like a recipe from my grandma where it's a pinch of this and a pinch of that because you know it's a little bit more high level without specific details. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, the roadmap, you know, as we know, it's not a one-time exercise. It's things start getting put into motion, uh, new information is going to come to light, new decisions will need to be made. And we want to keep the momentum going forward. So Myron, what mental supermodel technique do you think that we could use to keep us grounded during this transition from our strategy to execution, to, to keep a structure, to keep everybody working together, knowing that we don't necessarily have all the answers 
at this point, but we still need to start executing. Right. I like the way you teed that up, the willingness to change your mind, because it's not optional. I think of the quote from uh, Helmut von Moltke, the 19th century Prussian general. Now, just any history buffs out there, keep your von Moltkes straight. This is not the Helmut von Moltke, who was the German general in World War I. That was his nephew. It's also not the Helmut von Moltke, who was executed by the Nazis for trying to uh, resist Hitler's human rights abuses. That was the nephew of the second von Moltke. So this is Helmut von Moltke, the elder from the 19th century Prussian army. Thanks for clarifying that one. (laughs) Okay, great. So Helmut von Moltke, the elder, is famous for having said that no battle plan survives first contact with the enemy. He said it in German. It sounded a lot cooler that way. But there's a, a more modern formulation of that that I heard from Mike Tyson when he was in his heyday and everyone was coming up with a plan for how they're going to beat Mike Tyson. And he said, everybody's got a plan until they get hit. I don't know if that was original to him. Uh, uh, He was, uh, he was actually a great student of the history of boxing. He may have picked that up from somebody else, but that's who I heard it from. So the willingness to change your mind is essential because whatever we've planned through the strategy pillar is not going to survive engagement with the real world when we start executing on that project. Does that get at at least one part of what you're identifying that we need to deal with? Yeah. And anytime you bring up Mike Tyson, then that certainly fits what we're talking about. All right. Well, the other thing it reminds me of, uh, Jeremy, can I tell you a story? Yeah, always. Okay. So uh, I was traveling on business. This was quite a few years back, maybe a decade ago. And I was in the hotel at the end of the day, sitting in the hotel restaurant and uh, things were a a little crowded. So two guys asked if they could share the table with me. And of course, it turns out they were Air Force fighter pilots. And uh, we were sitting at the table. And of course, I know what an Air Force fighter pilot does. And so that was easy to understand. Then they asked me what I do. And I was starting to describe programming and consulting. And I suddenly observed that I was losing the audience. They didn't understand what I did or it wasn't very interesting. Totally understandable. So then I oriented myself to, I'd actually like to carry on this conversation. I don't want to just go back to sitting here by myself while they have their own conversation. So I made a decision about how to get the conversation back on track and I took action. So I said, hey, in your training, did you guys ever study John Boyd and the OODA loop? And oh my goodness, suddenly the nerd is part of the conversation again. So we went on and we had a great conversation about John Boyd and decision-making and the OODA loop. And now many people probably don't know what the OODA loop is. I'm sure some do. So let's unpack it. John Boyd was himself a fighter pilot and widely considered to be maybe the, the greatest fighter pilot of all time. He was, uh, uh, he actually had no combat kills, very little combat experience as I recall, uh, but he started his career during the Korean War and carried all the way up to uh, the 1980s, I believe is when he retired. And so he actually taught the, the art and science of 
aerial combat and was known as 42nd Boyd because he could, in simulated combat, start from a position of disadvantage and defeat anyone in 40 seconds. Now, I'm not really an expert on aerial combat, and that's not where we're going to go with this, but the OODA loop is what Boyd came up with, and it has the four components, O, which is to observe, O, which is to orient, D, which is to decide, and A, which is to act. So observe, orient, decide, act. And while Boyd is not necessarily a household name, uh, I don't think it's an exaggeration based on my study of him. He's a fascinating character. Uh, not an exaggeration to say that he revolutionized modern combat. And uh, I think the OODA loop is very much worth thinking about and applying as a mental supermodel in this context of transitioning from the strategy to the execution pillar and dealing with the fact that whatever we've planned is not going to survive intact through the execution. And also in light of the fact that we're constantly dealing with the chaos of long-term things and short-term things going on simultaneously. We're not just working on one thing at a time. We have lots of things going on at the same time over different time horizons. And we have to figure out how to manage that, how to make the adjustments and uh, diminish the chaos rather than increasing the chaos in the process, right? We can't just take the plan and say, well, that didn't survive contact with the enemy, just throw it out. How do we maintain the objectives, you know, the goal, the objectives, the roadmap of how do we get from here to there, even when it doesn't work perfectly? Yeah, I, uh, I appreciate that Boyd story. I'm I'm wondering what, what made him so successful? Was there a key element that was it the entire OODA loop that he would just put into practice? Was there any one key thing that stands out that made him so successful, do you think? Uh, I don't know if there's one thing. There, are, I would say there are a couple things. But one is his focus on speed over force, right? So the agility is a big part of, of what he focused on. And also, I think one of the great things that ties right back to what we've talked about many times in previous episodes is testing hypotheses. So the, the last two steps of the OODA loop, the, the decide and act, he viewed the decision as a hypothesis and the action as a test of the hypothesis. And so he was always ready to take the results of that, decide and act and observe that. So, right, it feeds right back. That's why it's a loop because the results of that hypothesis and test are observed and become the basis for a new orient, decide and act part of the cycle. And also, while you can look at it as a loop that just goes around step one, two, three, four, back to one, um, it really, and I'll, I'll put a, a diagram that Boyd created of the OODA loop into the show notes. This is episode 10, so mentalsupermodels.com slash 10. And all of the steps of this are really interconnected. So as you're observing and then you move to orient, you're continually observing even as you're orienting and you're continuing to orient as you're deciding and acting. So it's about speed of decision-making without increasing the chaos. That's number one. Number two, the second key insight that I think is really relevant to what we're talking about is that Boyd focused on getting the decision-making 
at the right place. So rather than forcing decision-making in his aerial combat situation, rather than, than having the pilot call back to central command to get a decision, allowing the pilot to make these decisions on his own in real time to speed up the decision-making. I think there's a lot of applicability of those principles and others I'm sure we'll get into, but even if we just start there, the, the speed of decision-making, the focus on hypotheses and testing, and on getting the decision-making down to the appropriate level when you can empower an individual to make his own decisions, uh, give him the tools to do that. Yeah, one of my takeaways actually at this point, listening to you go through that, is really on that first that first step, the observe step. You know, I think, and this kind of goes back to my principle of a willingness to adapt. In order to uh, in order to have that willingness, I think you you always have to have an open mindset in order to be willing to adapt and adjust. And I think that first step of observe is is critical here because you have to intentionally keep your awareness open in order to see the observations because, and I think this goes back to what you were saying that, you know, you have these four steps right here, but they're not linear. Feedback can actually come back to your observation. Feedback's coming to you all the time, whether you asked for it or not, you're getting feedback. And I think at each one of these steps, when you're orienting, you're getting feedback that you need to observe. When you're making decisions, you're getting feedback that you can, that you need to observe. And when you're acting or you're testing, you're getting feedback that you need to observe. So I think that to me is a key part to get started with is to just have this conscious awareness to observe the information that's coming at you. Because I think sometimes we feel like a decision's made and now I'm just executing and you're not really paying attention to the feedback that's coming to you because that's going to influence your next decision. And before you can make that decision, you have to reorient yourself. So kind of going back to the, this cycle and this OODA loop, when you get these observations, you're getting new information that you want to take forward, that you now want to synthesize, do some analysis on, bring in some of your personal experience and basically orient yourself around this new information that's come in. And then with that, take it into the hypothesis and testing that you're talking about. You don't always have the, the right answers. So once you've taken in new information, you've oriented yourself with it. This is where I don't think you necessarily have to make a decision, but that's why the hypothesis and testing components of decide and act are important because you don't always have the right answers, but you need to make some decisions. So you can come up with a hypothesis, take the feedback from that back into your observations, use that new information to inform your decision that you can now test. So am I, am I kind of turning the OODA loop into a, a, a practical technique or? Yeah, I think you're, you're applying it well. I think, I think that everything you're saying is consistent with the intent and, and the purpose of bringing up the OODA loop is not to make that an end in itself. It is absolutely a mental supermodel and a set of techniques that we can use. So our goal here is not to focus on aerial combat because in some ways aerial combat, while, while the 
skills required, the training required uh, are exceptionally high, and and the stakes are very high. It's a matter of life, death, and and uh, you know safety of military objectives and and all kinds of things. In some ways, it's a lot simpler than what we deal with in business decision making because you have a, a pretty straightforward set of objectives. It's to determine, is this a threat? If so, deal with it. Uh, do I, should I run or should I fight? And if I'm gonna fight, how do I win and stay alive, right? So that's relatively simple compared to the complex systems with unclear goals that we have to deal with in, in a business setting, in a human system. So I don't wanna overfocus on the OODA loop. There are other, similar kinds of things that draw on concepts of the OODA loop. But I do want to hit on a couple key points back to what you said. The observe is very, very important. Uh, and, you know, by analogy to, to Boyd's work, he, he found uh, that during the Korean War, I believe that the American aircraft was known as the F-86. I could be wrong about that. And in, in many ways, it was technically inferior to the Soviet aircraft that they were facing, and yet they had a, an outstanding record. And one of the factors that Boyd identified was the fact that the canopy was more open so that the pilot could see better. And so the, the concept of observing and the implications of having better, faster information is really important. And I think one of the things that we can't avoid talking about in that regard is the chronic problem that bosses don't get good information from their employees in many cases because people are afraid to speak up. So getting good information and being able to observe what's happening relies on having people around you who will tell you the truth. That's extremely important for executives and, and bosses. And something that I've heard over and over from good executives that realize that that's a problem and put steps in place to, uh, to mitigate it. In addition, then moving forward to the other things you talked about, the, uh, the same culture of allowing people to try things and fail is essential if you're going to put forward hypotheses and test them, right? If people are not allowed to fail, then they're not thinking in terms of hypotheses. They're thinking in terms of one right answer and how do I make sure that what I do succeeds. So there are some really important cultural things of how you need to apply the OODA loop or similar ideas in the context of the strategy to execution to make it work. And I think those are really the practical things. And also, uh, like I mentioned before, but I want to want to dig into it a little deeper, the getting the decision-making at the right level. One thing that I often talk about uh, is kind of empowering people to know at the point of meeting a need. So someone comes to them and says, hey, I, I need this, can you do this for me? That person needs to know when are they empowered to say yes or no on their own? When do they need to go to their peers and ask someone else, hey, what do you think? And when do they need to escalate it up the chain to their supervisor? And that basic set of guidelines to help someone make that decision when, when can I do this on my own? When do I need to consult one of my peers? And when do I need to escalate it up to a supervisor? That is a really outstanding application of Boyd's principle of getting the decision-making at the right level that too often is overlooked. You know, I think that people are often afraid to have the wrong answer. And I think that, you know, when you're talking about bosses, 
uh, I think that they should make it clear that that it's okay that there's a process that involves observing feedback. So it's not about everyone having the right answer and just taking it forward. I think if, if everyone knows that there is an acceptable process here of taking action and taking the, the feedback from that action, uh, which then just feeds the whole process so that everyone can adjust as necessary. And I think that's what speeds up the process that if, because if someone's afraid that to have the wrong answer, then they might just be spinning their wheels trying to figure it out because they don't want to be wrong because they've been given a directive that they just want to complete. But if the overall process is acceptable to everyone, that process being it's okay to not have the right answer, but at least act and bring that feedback back into the process as an observation. It could be to yourself. It could be to the boss, to management, to anybody, so that it could then be taken forward again and adjusted and acted on as necessary. But I think kind of that openness and that understanding of being intentional about not needing to have the right answers, but having a process in place to test that answer and bring the feedback and adjust if necessary. And that's what I think just kind of speeds up the process so people don't get bogged down and spin their wheels. Yeah, yeah. And there's a discipline from the field of, of software engineering that I think is applicable here, and that is the, the agile approach, the agile methodology. And while I'm a programmer uh, and I'm familiar with it, I, I'm actually not an expert on, on this approach, but I'll, I'll talk about some of the things from, from what I do know about it. Uh, and that is number one, it is based on a very fundamental insight, which is that the best way to get the highest quality software at the lowest cost is to get highly qualified, knowledgeable programmers, tell them what you want and let them start working, answer all their questions and let them do their thing. That absolutely is the best way to get the highest quality software at the lowest cost. The problem with that, and the reason that doesn't work in business in many times is what's missing from that? Well, you didn't get a budget up front and you didn't get documented features and functions up front. What you did is you got great programmers, told them to start working, answered all their questions, and you got an outcome. So there's this tension between the way a business needs to run in terms of planning, budgeting, uh, setting expectations, achieving goals that's in conflict with the most effective, most efficient way to build the software. And so I want to take that concept. And by the way, the, the agile principles were, uh, to my understanding, directly influenced by Boyd. So, so there is a, a connection there. But I want, to, I want to make two points about it. Number one is as we, whether it's in software development or whether we're taking principles from the agile approach and applying them more broadly in business, we always have to guard against the establishment of a, a bureaucracy. Uh, I remember talking to someone about their software development and they said, we do agile. Well, grammatically, that's kind of nonsense. And it's a red flag because what I began to suspect and then confirmed was, while they were doing a lot of great things, there were people for whom agile became an end in itself rather than a means to an end of getting things done quickly. So I would say definitely whether it's the six stage strategy to execution model or the OODA loop or agile, don't 
don't build a bureaucracy and let that become the end rather than a means to an end. But that's kind of a little aside. Let me come back to the point, which is we want to plan as much as necessary, but no more. So the strategy part of the strategy to execution, we don't want to overburden on the planning if we can, in fact, uh, start making decisions and, and building. And that's where the testing hypotheses, and we've even talked earlier uh, in previous episodes about proofs of concept or how do you get these tests of the hypotheses as quickly as possible. And I think that all is very consistent with this whole idea of UDA, Agile, uh, how do you allow your plans to survive contact with the real world and stay on track while making adjustments and making those adjustments as quickly as possible and allowing the adjustments to reduce the chaos and churn rather than increasing the chaos and churn. As we start wrapping this up, I just want to the, the, talk about the takeaways that I'm having from the conversation, because if I go back to where we are in our whole framework, which is, you know, we're transitioning from, from our strategy pillar to execution and we're, we're right in that gap. And some people will talk about bridging the gap between strategy and execution. And, and I mean, maybe that's a little bit about what we're talking about here, but we're really focusing on the mindset of how to keep a connection to the priorities and the roadmap in our strategy pillar. How do you keep that connection as you start moving forward? Because sometimes after the planning is done, execution runs wild. So I think the OODA loop is a mental model that can help maintain that connection. And it's not, it's not a tool, like sometimes in, in agile methodology, you know, you're thinking about the tools that you can use to, to maintain everything. This isn't necessarily just a tool, it's really a mindset. And it's a way to keep things moving forward and quickly act and make decisions while maintaining this connection between the priorities and the roadmap that were just decided on and planned out, maintain the connection to that as you start executing, not just move into execution and stay there. You still have some feedback that needs to come back into this prioritizing roadmap. And that's why I said before, kind of using it as like a recipe that I keep looking back to, you know, it's something that I want to come back to bring some observations to it. Maybe I need to adjust something so that I can then, make decisions and continue executing with that focus on what the priorities are, what the roadmaps are, because I need to maintain that connection to everything that we just strategically planned out. Yeah, that's a great summary, I think. And I would just emphasize a couple additional things, which is making sure that there are certain established ways of uh, keeping that agility and those adjustments going Harkening back to what we talked about in episode nine, the multidimensional roadmap, one point that you made, and I certainly agree with, is the need to revisit that roadmap on a regular basis. So there's, there'd be a formal rhythm of every month or every two months, we're going to revisit this roadmap and make adjustments. That in itself is part of this process of bridging from strategy to execution in a way that allows the planning to be continually ongoing while you're executing and you're making adjustments. And then also what I've talked about earlier in this episode of getting that decision-making down to the right level and making sure people understand what they're empowered to do means that whenever possible, you don't have to wait 
until that next month or that next two months for a formal meeting to review the roadmap, but you actually have good processes and good culture to allow people to make decisions, test hypotheses, and adjust to the reality of the situation without throwing away the plan. And if I kind of recast everything we've said into what's the whole point, how do you make adjustments without throwing away the plan? Okay, everybody's got a plan until they get hit. Well, they get hit. Can they stick to the plan? And that's really what we're trying to do. Excellent. Well, uh, I believe you're, you said you're going to post uh, an, an image of the OODA loop. I think once, once everyone, once you take a look at it and you can kind of visualize it, it'll make it that much easier to put it into practice. Outstanding. Excellent. Folks can uh, check it out at mentalsupermodels.com. And there you'll also find the links to connect with me and Jeremy on LinkedIn and let us know what you think of the show. All right. Appreciate it. We'll see you next time. Bye.